Kedi, California, a town that hosted a population of less than 100 people, would be absolutely devastated in the spring of 1981 when the brutal murders of three individuals and the abduction of a fourth would occur at Keddy Resort's cabin number 28. Because on April 12th, 1981, 14-year-old Sheila Sharp, who was returning home in the morning after spending the night at a neighbor's house, walked in the front door of the small cabin her family had been renting and was met with the bound, bloodied, and deceased bodies of her mother, brother, and brother's friend. Not only was there a brutal triple homicide to deal with in the living room, but Sheila and her neighbors would also soon learn her only sister, Tina, was missing. Officially being dubbed the Keddy Cabin Murders, the truth of what happened to the Sharp family all those years ago is something that still continues to frustrate and elude police even today. So please join me today while we take a look at one of Northern California's most infamous and unsolved murders, and the one that put the once unknown town of Ketty onto everyone's radar. I'm your host, Andy, and this is Strange and Unexplained. In 1979, Susan, or Sue, Sharp, relocated herself and her five children from Connecticut to Northern California after separating from her husband. The family originally rented a small trailer when they first moved to the area, but after about a year of being cramped together, the Sharps were able to relocate once again to cabin number 28 at the Ketty Resort in Ketty, California. This small town, and even smaller community, would be where Sue and her five children would stay until the gruesome evening in 1981. Those children included her 15-year-old son, John, daughter Sheila, age 14, and Tina, age 12, and her two younger sons, Rick and Greg, who were only about 10 and 5. Now, the Ketty Resort was a cozy vacation spot nestled deep in the Sierra Nevada mountains. The resort featured a variety of small cabins, a main office, and a convenience store, in addition to a playground and a refreshing pool for guests to enjoy. The cabins were typically rented out on a weekly basis and boasted rustic charm with no electricity or running water. Despite their simplicity, the resort attracted many families seeking a retreat from urban life and a chance to bask in the natural splendor of the mountains. Even though the cabins were small and considered a rustic getaway, the Sharps, as well as several other families, made these little vacation spots their home and just like with any other small neighborhood or community, the children around the area were often friends and would often have sleepovers together. This was exactly what was happening the night of April 11th, 1981, when Sheila Sharp headed over to one of their neighbor's cabins, the Seabolts, at around 8 p.m. Her sister Tina had been hanging out next door as well when she arrived, and after watching a little TV and chatting together, Tina headed back home for bed. It would be the following morning at around 7 a.m. when Sheila would return home to make the horrifying discovery I alluded to at the start of the episode, and there was nothing that could prepare her for the gruesome scene she would stumble upon. Inside the living room of cabin 28 lay the bodies of Sue, John, and John's 17-year-old friend, Dana Wingate. Each one had been bound with different electrical wires and had been brutally attacked with at least two different knives and a claw hammer. The living room of the home 
was completely covered in blood and the teenager left stricken with terror. After frantically running back to the Seabolt's house for help, Jamie Seabolt rushed inside the home to check and see if the other members of the Sharp family were still all right. He made his way to one of the adjacent bedrooms and was overwhelmed with a brief sense of relief when he found the two young Sharp boys still asleep in their bed, along with the boy's friend and fellow neighbor, Justin Smart. More on him a bit later. Not wanting to alert the boys, and doing his best to avoid traumatizing them even further by having them possibly witness the bloody scene in their living room, Jamie was able to get the boys out of the home through their bedroom window and safely back over to his house where his wife had already phoned the police. Jamie later confessed that he returned to the home and entered through the back door to try and once again look to see if he could locate Sue's other daughter, Tina. But alas, she was nowhere to be found. When police arrived, they were able to document just how brutal the attack on the family was, with the autopsies revealing multiple stab wounds, Sue and John having their throats slit, and each one of them suffering repeated strikes of blunt force trauma, mostly from the hammer. But most importantly, where was Tina? With the FBI called to the scene and a full-scale search instigated for Tina, police turned to the only possible witnesses to the horrific crime, the surviving boys. During the initial investigation, the three boys maintained that they were asleep during the attack. However, Justin Smart, the neighbor friend who was staying the night, later disclosed to the officers that he witnessed Sue with two men in their house that evening. One of the men was described as having a mustache and long hair, while the other was noted to be clean-shaven with short hair. Both of them were wearing glasses, and one of the men was seen carrying a hammer. He would go on to say that John and Dana came home, and the pair started getting into an argument with the two men, which progressed into what he called a violent fight, after which he says the men took Tina out of the house through the back door. A composite sketch of the two men would be drawn up and sent around locally, but these sketches have since become a topic of concern amongst people who are suspicious of the case. That being because these sketches were not actually done by any official police or FBI sketch artists, but instead they were done by a local man who sometimes helped the cops out here and there. And a man who apparently, according to reports, had no artistic ability. I know, right? I guess it really is all about who you know. But anyways, the sheriff at the time, Doug Thomas, and the special agents who were sent to assist in the investigation got to work trying to find any possible clues as to who could or would have done something as awful as this. The primary suspects in the case were quickly identified as Justin's father, Martin Smart, and his house guest, ex-con John Bo Bodeby, who had ties to organized crime in the area. According to reports, both men had been observed acting suspiciously in a bar the previous night while also wearing suits and ties. Martin Smart would also go on to tell the investigators that he possessed a hammer that was consistent with one of the ones found at the crime scene and claimed that his hammer had mysteriously disappeared shortly before the murders occurred. I mean, all right, Martin, nobody mentioned anything about a hammer, but we'll definitely write that down. However, even though they had suspects at the time, they unfortunately didn't have any evidence tying the men to it, and the case would eventually go cold. There was still a large-scale search for Tina that continued for several weeks around the area with no results and it was eventually scaled back and she would go on to just become another missing person. That is, 
until 1984. Because three years later, in Butte County, approximately 30 miles from Ketty, a hiker would stumble upon the discovery of a human skull. Alongside the remains, detectives uncovered a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. Oh, that tape dispenser is significant because one thing I failed to mention earlier was that the victims of the night of the attack each had their mouths taped shut with surgical tape. Following this discovery, it was confirmed that the remains belonged to Tina Sharp, now confirming that the Ketty Cabin murders to be a quadruple homicide. It's here that another bit of pretty important evidence comes into the picture. Following the initial announcement of the hiker finding the remains, the Butte County Sheriff's Department received an anonymous phone call where the caller indicated that the skull possibly belonged to the long-lost Tina. Unfortunately, and for seemingly unknown reasons, that conversation was recorded on a small tape, but was then placed into a manila envelope before being tossed into an evidence bin without ever being followed up on. Surprisingly, the tape containing the anonymous tip was discovered intact in the case records, untouched by the Plumas County Sheriff's Department until 2013, when the case was reopened under the supervision of new investigators, Sheriff Greg Hagwood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. The new investigation quickly began turning over any old leads and reopening any and all evidence files associated with the now 30-year-old case, and soon started noticing multiple red flags during their searches. It was revealed that Marilyn Smart, Martin's wife and mother of Justin, had separated from her husband the day the murders were discovered, finding that she had even handed over a handwritten letter from her estranged husband to the Plumas County Sheriff's Department. In the letter, Marty expressed his frustrations, stating, I've paid dearly for your affection. Now that I have paid with the lives of four individuals, you inform me that our relationship is over? Fine. What more did you expect from me? The letter in question, however, was not considered a confession and was not investigated further at the time. Despite Marilyn's disclosure in a 2008 documentary implicating her husband's friend Bo, then-Sheriff Doug Thomas contested this claim and affirmed that Martin had passed a polygraph test when interviewed. It was, however, later revealed that Martin had a close relationship with Sheriff Doug Thomas, although Thomas denies this still. In 2016, Gamberg went to visit a counselor in the Reno Veterans Administration, who shared with him that in May of 1981, Martin Smart had reportedly admitted to killing Sue and Tina Sharp. Smart allegedly confessed, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. Despite being informed of this confession in 1981, the Department of Justice disregarded it as mere hearsay. And now let's get into some of the theories as to what really went down that night and why. One prominent theory suggests a romantic love triangle involving Martin, Marilyn, and Sue. Allegations surfaced that Martin and Sue were having an affair together, with Sue allegedly counseling Marilyn recently to leave her reportedly abusive husband. Upon learning of what he considered meddling in his marriage, Martin sought the help of Bo, a friend and reported mob enforcer who had stayed with the Smart family briefly before the Ketty murders, to remove Sue entirely from the equation. This could explain Marilyn's decision to leave her husband on the day of the murders, as well as why the Smart boy and the other Sharp boys in the adjacent room were left unharmed. Furthermore, 
and explains insight into the significance of Martin's handwritten note that Marilyn handed over to the Plumas Sheriff's Department all those years ago. Several investigators assigned to the reopened case in 2013 believe that the murders are connected to a larger conspiracy. According to Gamberg, it's evident that the Department of Justice and the Sheriff's Department, under Thomas's leadership, attempted to conceal the truth. He contends that Bo and Martin were involved in a broader drug smuggling operation that implicated the federal government. This may provide an explanation for the Sacramento DOJ's choice to assign two reportedly corrupt organized crime special agents instead of officers from the Homicide Department to assist with the search. Also, this possibly sheds light on Sheriff Thomas' decision to let the two primary suspects leave town without facing consequence. Now, over 40 years later, the case continues to haunt the small town of Ketty, as well as the officers still attached to the murders. Despite Martin's mark passing away from cancer in 2000 and Bo Bobadie dying in Chicago in 1988, the investigators still looking at the case believe that those two men might not have been the only ones truly involved in the horrific attack. With new evidence being found as recently as 2018, hopes that at least some sense of closure might still be brought to the surviving members of the Sharp family, as well as those of Dana Wingate, who have continued to pressure law enforcement for answers since the loss of their loved ones back in 1981. But there you have it, folks. The case of the Ketty Cabin murders, the brutal quadruple homicide that absolutely shocked the tiny town hidden away in the Sierra Nevada, one that to this day still holds more questions than it does answers. Was there a cover-up, or was this simply a case of extremely questionable police work? At this point, it's still not clear enough to tell, but hopefully sometime soon, we'll finally know who is truly responsible for this horrible crime. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you have, please like and subscribe for more content just like this. Don't forget to follow us on social media everywhere at True Crime Guys, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for videos and shorts posted daily. Thank you for joining us here today at Strange and Unexplained, and we hope to see you again next time. But until then, guys, be strange. Just don't be a stranger. Stranger.